said, welcome to Grace Church. If you don't uh, know me, if we've never met before, my, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Thank you so much for coming out. I also want to welcome those of you watching online as well. And obviously, it's really cool to see so many families up here. And we had this, we, had, we literally, we had about the same number at all three services. So just a ton of young families. We are excited to, to be on this journey with you in both the, the joy and excitement and the chaos of that stage, right? As you can see in some of the other services, it's hard to, it's hard to control your children. And uh, they do what they want to do. And that's normal. That's part of life. And we're just entering into that with you. So uh, if you guys just keep that in the back of your mind this week, just be praying for those families as they kind of continue on in that journey as parenthood. So, well, if you are new with us, right now we find ourselves uh, in a series in the book of Acts, which we have broken into three different sections. And in the first part of this series, we talked all about the message of Jesus, right? Specifically, what was the message? How do you deliver that message? And why was that message so important that the early church and the apostles were literally willing to die for that message? But right now we find ourselves in the second part of this series, which is looking all about the mission of Jesus. So now that we have this message, what is it that God exactly is calling us to do with that message, right? What is this mission? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a story in which God is going to try and change the way that the apostle Peter thinks about this mission. And this change, this change is going to be something that is going to war against 3,000 years of Jewish tradition. And if you've ever tried to convince someone or change someone's mind about a belief that they have held for a really long time, you know that it's really hard to change a belief that's been so fixed for so long. And so you know this change is not going to be easy for Peter. And I think by the end of this morning, uh, for some of you, you're going to find that the change that they're calling Peter to, that God's going to call us to, that it's not going to be easy for us to make this change either. So if you have a Bible with me, I want you guys to join me in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to be on, if you, if you, uh, we're going to be on page 891. So if you uh, don't have a Bible, there might be one in the seat back in front of you, and that will be on page 891. And we say this all the time, but if you need a Bible uh, and you don't have one, you can feel free just to take that Bible home with you and consider that a gift from us. And so we're going to be in chapter 10, as I said. We're just going to kind of work our way through the story, pausing at various points to talk about what's going on. So we're going to start reading chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. And so the first thing that Luke tells us in chapter 10 is that there is this man named Cornelius, that he is living in a city called Caesarea, and he is a centurion in the Italian regiment. And the reason that last part is so important is because that means that he is from Rome, and that means that he would be what the Bible calls a Gentile, which simply means someone who is not of Jewish birth, who is not like ethnically part of the nation of Israel. Now, the other thing that he tells us is that this Gentile is a God-fearing man, meaning that although this man was not born Jewish, that he has decided on some level to worship and follow the God of the Jews. And so Luke tells us that one day this man named Cornelius, he has a vision from God that tells him very specifically he is supposed to send men to Joppa to find this guy named Peter, never met him before, doesn't know who he is, go find this guy named Peter, and I want you to bring him back to your house in Caesarea. Now, if you look at this on a map, you'll notice that this is no small task. So Caesarea is way up here at the top, and then all the way down here is Joppa, which is about 32 miles away. And so for us, that would be a quick hop in the car, not a big deal. For them, it was a little bit more of a task, a bit of a hike, a couple days walk. And so Cornelius calls together two of his servants and one of his soldiers, and he gives them instructions. Hey, you got to go find this guy named Peter. That's all I know. Go find him. Bring him back. So while these three guys are on their way to find Peter, Luke tells us that God gives Peter a vision of his own. So check out what it says. Here's Peter's vision, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanting something to eat, and while the meal, while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And so while these guys are on their way to find Peter, God gives Peter a vision of his own. And in this vision, uh, we're told that Peter sees something like a large sheep being let down to earth. And then inside of this sheet are all sorts of different animals, specifically four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then basically Peter gets the command. He's like, see those animals? Would you go kill them and eat them, right? Go cook yourself a steak. Go make something nice out of this. This is the command that Peter is given. And now this, is, this seems kind of like a weird vision, like what in the world is going on here. And so a bit of context to this vision is that you need to understand that Peter is Jewish, that he was born an Israelite, and so for his entire life, he has been following a very specific set of laws and rules about which types of animals and foods were considered clean for him and which types of animals and foods were considered unclean for him. Now, there's a lot of places you can find this, uh, this distinction in the Old Testament. Let me show you two places. first one comes in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 11, Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some animals that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, which I had to look up, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. 
The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And I'm going to spare you guys the details of reading the rest of this chapter because as you can see, right, it starts to get, you kind of get in the weeds a bit, right? There's literally lots of details, lots of instructions, lots of very specific requirements. But if you were to keep reading through the chapter, so these are just the first eight verses, you get to verse nine and now it starts talking about the creatures that are living in the water. And then you get down to verse 13 and now it talks about all the different types of birds, down to verse 20, now we're talking about flying insects in 29. We have the animals that move along the ground. All the way down to verse 46. So 46 verses later of instructions. And these are the animals you can eat and can't eat. This section closes out like this. It says, these are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. And so so again, like you see the details and the intricate layers and depths that God is going to explain all these specific things to them. One more place we see this uh, about 10 chapters later. uh, In chapter 20, we read this. You must therefore make a distinction between the clean and the unclean animals and between the unclean and the clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird, or anything that moves along the ground, those that I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And so again, this ability to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, this was a really big deal to the Israelites. This was something that had been taught to them and ingrained in them literally from the moment they were born. And so understandably, this is why Peter responds the way that he does. Look back at it, verse 14. He says, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never, never eaten anything impure or unclean. And so Peter gets this direct command from God. And then Peter, right, the great apostle Peter, the Peter who preached and 3,000 people came to Jesus, the Peter who is casting out demons, the Peter who just raised from someone from the dead, right? That Peter gets a command from God and he looks back at God and he says, no, not gonna do it, right? He straight up tells God no. And so God repeats himself three times and then the vision ends. And so Peter is beside himself. Peter doesn't know what to do with this vision. At this point, he has no clue what this vision means. But now remember, while all of this is happening, these three men are still on their way to find Peter, right? And Peter has no idea about the other vision, and he has no idea, no clue who is about to show up at his doorstep. Because the people who are about to show up at his door, according to these Jewish laws and traditions, they are also considered unclean. These Gentiles who are on their way to find him, well, they don't practice the same food laws, And many of them do things which in the eyes of the Israelite would make them unclean. And so for a Jewish person to even come in contact with the Gentile, right, that would defile them, that would make them unclean. And so you just didn't do that. But what Peter is about to discover is that his vision is not about what he is going to eat for lunch, and it is all about who he is willing to eat lunch with. So check out what happens next, verse 17. 
While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So while Peter is still trying to understand the vision and make sense of the vision, these three guys, they show up at his door, and we're told that God gives Peter a second set of instructions. And the key phrase in those instructions is this. It's the phrase, do not hesitate. And it's easy to miss when you just read through this, but as I kind of dove into what the original meaning of that phrase was, I discovered something that I just thought was so cool and so clarifying. Here's what this phrase means. This phrase literally means to make no distinction. To make no distinction. It means don't evaluate them. Don't make any prejudgments about them. Don't discriminate against them. And more than that, don't even hesitate. These men show up. Don't think twice about it. So what is God telling Peter? He is telling them that when these men show up at your doorstep who do not look like you or act like you or have the same ethnicity as you, when these men who show up at your door do things and eat things that you think are sacrilegious or that you think might defile you or make you unclean, when these men who show up at your door would be turned away by all of your peers, and if your peers knew, they would give, apply peer pressure for you to do the same, when all of that goes through your mind in a moment, Peter, I am telling you to make no distinction. I am telling you do not discriminate against these men and do not show prejudice. So God gives Peter this message, and here's how Peter responds. Verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And one of the interesting facts that we are given pretty early in this story is that Peter is staying in a town called Joppa. And while that seems like a really unimportant detail in the story, the city of Joppa really only shows up in one other place, prominent place in scripture, and that is actually in the story of Jonah. And so for those who might not be familiar with the story, Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he is, given the, he is called to take the message of God to a non-Jewish group of people called the Ninevites. But as the story unfolds, what we find is that Jonah doesn't want to take the message to the Ninevites because he doesn't really like them. He thinks they're evil people. He knows they've done some horrible things, and so he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to give them the message of Jesus because he doesn't want them to be forgiven, right? He does not like the Ninevites. And so instead of going where God tells him to go, Jonah gets on a boat, and he flees in the opposite direction of where God is calling him. And the place that he does that at is a port city called Joppa. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a, found a ship bound for that port. And so I don't think it's by accident that of all the places God could have given Peter this vision, 
Peter, God gives it to him in the port city of Joppa. Because the task before Peter is really the same one that God had given Jonah centuries before. God is calling him to take his message to a group of people that he doesn't normally associate with, and if we're honest, to a group that he might not even like that much. But unlike Jonah, Peter listens to God, and he decides that he's going to go. So Peter gathers a couple of his friends, and he makes the trip all the way down, uh, all the way, or all the way up to Caesarea with a few of his fellow friends. And when he gets there, he suddenly finds himself inside the house, not just with Cornelius, not just with one Gentile, but he finds himself inside a house with a whole group, a whole room filled with Gentiles. And if you can put yourself in his shoes for a moment, that must have been an incredibly uncomfortable position for Peter to be in. And so here's what it says, verse 27. Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And so again, Peter makes this trip to Caesarea. He meets Cornelius. He enters this house. And now that he's in there, he basically declares two things to this house full of Gentiles. The first thing he does is he says, Peter says, guys, listen, I am breaking my own laws by even being here, right? Like, do you understand the situation that I am putting myself in? I'm not supposed to be here if my peers knew. Like, this is, this is against the law for me. But then the second thing Peter does is he, is he acknowledges that God is taking that longstanding and deep-seated belief that he has. And he declares that God is starting to help him think differently. Right, again, Peter's standing in a room full of Gentiles, and he basically acknowledges to them that for most of his life, he has looked down on them, that he has viewed them as impure and unclean, but only recently has God started to give him a new vision, change his mind for how he is going to view humanity. And so in response to Peter's comments, Cornelius kind of fills him in on the vision. He tells him all that's happened and why he invited him down. And again, remember, we, we kind of get both parts of the story, but these guys only have their side, right? Cornelius has no idea about Peter's vision. Peter has no idea about Cornelius's vision. And so God is like sovereignly arranging these two men. And now they're in a the house and they're like, why are you here? I don't know. Why are you here? Why did you invite me? I, like they don't really know what's going on. And so Cornelius is just like, hey, here's what happened. All I know is you're supposed to come here and God's given you some message that apparently is really important. And so me and this room of people, like, we're ready. Whatever it is God has to tell us, we want to hear it. And so that's what happens. And so uh, Peter decides to give them this speech. And I'm not going to read you the entire thing for time's sake, but here's where it is. It starts in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and who does what is right. And so he starts his speech by declaring again that even though he and his fellow Jews have historically made distinctions about them and looked down on them, that God does not. That the prejudice that you could find in Peter's heart is not something that you're going to find in God's heart. And then verses 36 to 43, uh, basically Peter shares the gospel, 
which we spent the whole, like, the past six weeks, the first part of the series, unpacking that in detail. So I'm not going to rehash all of that right now. But he talks about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about the forgiveness of sins that is now available to anyone who would believe. And while Peter is finishing his speech, we're told that something amazing and something miraculous happens. So check it out, verse 44. Look back with me. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. And so as Tony talked about uh, throughout the course of this series and even the past few weeks, the theme verse for Acts is Acts 1.8, which calls the disciples to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this verse has kind of a dual purpose. It serves as both an outline for the book of Acts and a set of, of instructions for the early church. And so as Tony pointed out, that meant that this mission that they're on, this mission is supposed to be centrifugal, meaning it was supposed to start in the center and it was supposed to move outward with an outward force that kept driving them further and further and further all the way to the ends of the earth. And the idea of the gospel going out, this idea was about more than just geography though. Because in order for this to happen, in order for them to actually live this out, this meant that the gospel was going to have to cross racial and ethnic and political and religious borders, right? The gospel does not go out unless you start crossing some of those borders and barriers. And so Judea meant that the gospel, the message of the gospel would go out to all of the Jews. And Samaria meant that the message was also supposed to go to the Samaritans, who the Jews considered kind of like half-breeds, right? If you know your Old Testament a little bit, back in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel split, you had a northern and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, well, they started intermarrying with other people and they became the Samaritans. And so the southern kingdom, the Jews looked at them and they thought, oh, they're like half-breeds. They're not even really Israel anymore. And this meant that the gospel was supposed to go to them. And then lastly, it was supposed to go to the ends of the earth, which meant the gospel, the good news of Jesus was also designed for the Gentiles for outsiders, people outside of the nation of Israel. But here's the deal. In the first half of Acts, for the most part, they're not actually doing that. This is not actually happening. They are not going out. It's not until Acts chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, we're told this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, and Samaria, right? It took a great persecution to get them moving. And even then, notice what's missing. No ends of the earth, no Gentiles. And if you fast forward to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, this is actually confirmed. Here's what it says. Now that those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only, only among the Jews, According to the research I found, it has been roughly seven years between Acts chapter 2 when Peter gave that first speech to our story in Acts chapter 10. Seven years, and the gospel has still not gone out to the Gentiles. 
Now, there are a few exceptions to that. Chapter 11 goes on to say that there are uh, some of the converts from places like Cyprus, which we just read about, they did start eventually preaching the gospel to the Gentiles there. But for the most part, with a few exceptions, the apostles in the early church were not taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And I think this is one of the reasons why God is intervening so heavily in this story. I think this is why God gives Peter a vision and why he specifically tells him, do not hesitate. Because you know why you tell, why do you tell someone, do not hesitate? It's because you think they're going to hesitate, right? The reason God tells Peter to make no distinction is because without God's intervention, Peter would have made a distinction. I think sometimes we like to romanticize the apostles as these perfect men who filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, they would never, they never would or never could do anything wrong. But that simply is not the case. The reason God has to tell Peter this is because Peter had some prejudice in his heart and it was his prejudice that was standing in the way of the mission, right? If the gospel's gonna go out, they're gonna have to get past this because they can't do this as long as they feel the way they do about these different people groups. And it's not just Peter. It's the majority of the early church that seemed to feel the same way. I don't know if you guys caught this, but in the passage we just looked at, did you guys notice the response of Peter's companions, the men who went with him, who made that journey? Look back with me. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Right? Instead of being excited for the Gentiles or overjoyed or that God had accepted the Gentiles, it says they were astonished that God would accept even the Gentiles. Right? It's as if they're saying like, wow, if God will let these dirtbags in, man, he really will accept anyone. Right? Like This statement, this is not a compliment to the Gentiles. They are blown away because they're like, I, I can't believe he's actually doing this. Right? If you fast forward to chapter 11, when the early church finds out about Cornelius and the story that we are reading about, uh, they respond in a similar fashion. Here it is. Acts 11, verse 1, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And what you would expect to find next is something like this. And so they thank God and praised him for his mercy and his goodness, right? That's what you would expect to find. It's happening. The gospel is going out. Like Acts 1-8, it, it's actually happening. And there, there should, should be celebrations and parades and joy. And oh my gosh, the world's going to know Jesus. This is amazing. This is what you would expect. But here's what they actually respond with. Verse 2. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Again, not excitement, not joy, but offense. Peter, what are you thinking? How could you even eat with these people? So what is God doing in Acts chapter 10? He is battling with the early church and their internal prejudices and discrimination. And God is trying to convince them, guys, the gospel really is for everyone. And until they get this, this mission is not going anywhere. I like how author and 
Pastor John Stott put it. He said it like this. He said the primary question was how would God deal with Peter? How would he succeed in breaking down Peter's deep-seated racial intolerance? The principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. And so while this story is about the Gentiles accepting the gospel, this story is also about God transforming the heart of Peter and the early church from one of prejudice to one of acceptance. And so one of the ways that God tries to do this is he confirms his acceptance of the Gentiles by this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look back with me, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Right? And so Peter, even if he didn't want to do this, even if he was resistant to this, Peter doesn't really have a lot of choice at this point because God has already accepted them. And Peter says, well, clearly God has accepted them. And if he's accepted them, then how can I or anyone else stand in the way? And so in the same way that we have seen, if you've been following along in the book of Acts, we saw a unique outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 for the Jews. We see the same unique outpouring in Acts chapter 8 to confirm the acceptance that God is actually accepting in these Samaritans, these half-breeds. God confirms it, and he does the exact same thing again in Acts chapter 10 for the Gentiles. Throughout this, through this unique outpouring of the Spirit, God confirms without a shadow of a doubt his acceptance and his inclusion of even the Gentiles. One of the interesting things that you find is that even though God makes this so clear for them, so clear, as you continue to read through the book of Acts and you get into the letters, you find that the early church is still struggling with this. And the apostle Peter even continued to struggle with this. There's actually a part in the book of Galatians where the apostle Paul actually rebukes Peter because Peter's actions are displaying that he still doesn't quite get this yet. He's still doing this a little bit. And Paul actually calls him out on this. Because the prejudice, prejudices that they had in their hearts, man, these were deeply rooted and they were longstanding. And as we discussed at the beginning, those kinds of things, they, those do not die easily. Those things are hard, really hard to get rid of. And so as, as I was kind of just reflecting on this passage the few weeks, I thought, man, what do, you, what do I do with all this? And if I'm honest, when I started studying this passage, this is not where I expected Acts chapter 10 to go. It's not what I thought when I first glanced at it, but as I dove into it, this is kind of the direction that it took us. And so as I've kind of been reflecting on the passage, I landed on three ways that I think this passage uh, has challenged me and I think should challenge us today. So with the time we have left, I'm going to lean into these three things for just a few minutes together. So here's the first one. It said, followers of Jesus should feel responsible, not superior. That followers of Jesus should feel responsible, not superior. So as Pastor Seth talked about last week, back in the book of Exodus, we find out that of all the nations, right, of all the nations that existed on the earth, that God, in his sovereignty, he chose Israel to be his treasured possession. Right, like that is the language of scripture. Out of all the nations, I chose you to be my special and treasured possession, that he gave them a unique role 
in human history. 100% that is true. But over time, Israel allowed that reality to inflate their ego a little bit. And they started to view themselves with an unhealthy amount of nationalistic pride. And they started to view themselves as better and superior. And they started looking down upon the nations around them. But what the Bible is also very clear about is that it didn't actually choose Israel because they were better. It chose them because God had made a promise to Abraham. And the unique role that God had given them was never meant to puff them up and to make them feel superior or better than any of the nations around them. What it should have made them feel was responsible for the nations around them. Because the gift that God had given Israel was something that was never meant to be hoarded or just for them. It was always meant to be shared and displayed to the nations. And so this call to Peter to reach the Gentiles, this is not a new call. This is not something unique that is special that God is suddenly doing. This is a reminder of what Israel has always been called to do. So I think in the same way as I was just reflecting on this, man, I think it can be so tempting for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus and we've been following Jesus for a while. Over time, as God starts to, to do his work in us and he starts to refine us and we actually start to, to break free from some of our patterns of sin, I've found that I think it can be easy and it can be tempting to start to view yourselves a little bit highly, more highly than maybe you used to and to start looking at the world around us and say, oh, I can't believe they still struggle with that. And you, you kind of start looking down on people around us. But as you open up the scriptures, what you also find is that the thing that ultimately distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever is not their moral superiority, but it's that they are forgiven and that they have been given the Holy Spirit. Right? The thing that distinguishes biblically a believer from an unbeliever is that they have been forgiven and that God has given them, just like the Gentiles, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so for anyone who understands and has received the gospel, it should never lead us to feel superior to anyone else. What it should do is it should lead us to feel responsible for the people around us. Because all of the gracious gifts and the things that God has done in our life, again, that's not because we're awesome, it's because God is. And what we should do is feel responsible that we have been given this gift that we are now called to share with the world around us. So challenge number one that I think I found in this passage is that followers of Jesus should feel responsible, not superior. Which leads us to the second one. Followers of Jesus should make no distinctions and show no favoritism. We should make no distinctions and show no favoritism. And here's the deal. We live in a world that does this all the time. All the time. And I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, we do this all the time. We do this. We do it related to race and gender and social class and political parties and body type and how much money somebody has and the list could go on and on and on. We make distinctions all the time. We put people in categories and we treat them accordingly. We do this. And not only do we put people in categories, we tend to think that our category is the superior category. So we think our political position is superior. 
and our morals are superior, and our social class is superior. And so we look at the people who are higher than us in the social class, and we think, well, they must have done something unethical. That's how they got up there. And we look at the people who are lower than us, and we think, well, they must be lazy. That's why they're down there, down there. And we are in the perfect place, right in the middle, right? Our class is superior. And God says, guys, you got to stop thinking that way. you got to stop thinking that way. And his call is to make no distinctions and show no favoritism. So what do we do with this? How do we break habits and patterns of thinking that have existed since the dawn of time and have existed in most of us from a very early age? Well, as I was studying this passage, I came across a guy named Ajith Fernando who I thought had some really, really helpful and clarifying thoughts on this. So here's what he said. He said, we must help people understand the nature of Christian identity, which does not depend on human distinctions. When people realize that they are accepted as significant and useful to the kingdom, not because of any merit of their own, but only because of the mercy of God, they also realize that they cannot look down on anyone. And what is most important to them, they are undeserving recipients of glorious gifts. And here's the part, I want you to lean into this. Prejudice, then, is an expression of insecurity and feelings of inferiority. If we do not feel secure and accepted in Christ, we need earthly things to make us feel important. One of those earthly things is the idea that we are superior to others. To the one who has truly understood grace, such a position is an impossibility. And I want to make sure you catch what he's saying here because I think this is so important. He says that the starting point to changing this is to realize that our discrimination is really a reflection not of the other person, but it is a reflection of our own insecurities. He says that when we fail to properly find our value in Jesus, that we start to put others in categories and we start to look down on them as a way to cope with and to cover up our own feelings of inferiority. And so one of the challenges I want to give you guys this week is this. The next time you catch yourself doing this, I'm just going to be really honest, because you're going to do it. You're going to see someone, and for whatever reason, for a variety of things, you're going to put them in a category. And you might, the next time you catch yourself doing this, making a distinction, I want, yourself to ask, I want you to ask yourself the question, Why? Why did I just do that? Why did I just think that way? Right? I want you just to lean in to your motives in that moment and ask some hard questions. And I want you to see if maybe, maybe Ajith is right. Because as followers of Jesus, we should make no distinctions and show no favoritism. Which leads us to the last one. So I'm going to invite the band back up. Uh, here it is, number three. I think we should praise God for inviting us in. I think we should praise God for inviting us in. And here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times uh, people look at a passage like this in the application as well. We should start in Medina County. We should share the gospel with everyone here. And then we need to take it to Ohio. And then we need to take it to the rest of the United States. And then we need to get some mission trips. And we need to send people overseas. Right? We've got to take this thing to the ends of the earth which is good, and that is true, and we should absolutely do that. But we also need to recognize, in reality, 
that the apostles already did that, which is why all of us are here right now. Because the reality is we, we are the Gentiles. We are the ends of the earth. We are the outsiders in this story. The story is about the inclusion of us. This story is about the defining moment in human history when God confirmed to the early church and to the apostles that the gospel was not just for Israel, but the gospel was actually for us. And so for those of us who have accepted that invitation, I think this should cause us to worship. And for those of us who are still investigating Jesus, man, I think this should cause you to pause and think long and hard on what in the world is holding you back from a God like that. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and the band's going to close us out with three songs. While they're doing that, I want to challenge you guys to do two things. The first one might make you a little uncomfortable, but I want to challenge you to repent. I want to challenge you to say, God, would you search me? And would you look for any offensive ways? And I want you just to acknowledge and maybe allow God to show you the ways in which you have made distinctions and shown favoritism, where you've treated people maybe in ways you shouldn't have. And I want you to just invite God in and say, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you do your work in me to cleanse me and to rip that out of me so that I don't do that moving forward? And then secondly, I want to challenge you guys to do the thing that we just talked about. I think we should praise God for inviting us in. And obviously, we always close with worship, and so you're worshiping, you're doing what you normally do, but man, I want you to think about it a little bit differently this week. I want to encourage you just to say, man, God, I am so grateful that you're not like me, that you let outsiders in, and that you didn't just keep this thing for your special group of people, but that you invited me into the story with you. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so grateful for the character that you have and and the God that you are. God, thank you that you are not a God of uh, who makes distinctions and who shows favoritism. God, because if you did, I would be on the outside looking in. God, would you forgive me and would you forgive us for the times when we are not like you? For the times when we do that, when we put people in categories, when we see someone and find out they're wealthy or they're the boss's son or they're whatever and suddenly we treat them, God, would you forgive us for the way we treat people differently and we make distinctions? God, would you search us in the course of the next few minutes? Would you, would you search our hearts? Would you show us any ways that are offensive to you and that are wrong to you? God, would you forgive us for those things? Would you heal us? Would you change us? And then God, would you cause us to just simply Stand back in awe and worship and praise you from the depths of who we are because as a gracious God, you invited us in. Father, we love you. We are grateful. It's in your son's name. Amen.